You're listening to the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. Some of us just can't sit still, can we? Staying busy, whether by choice or because of all the demands, is a reality for many of us. A 2019 survey found that of the 2,000 participants polled, on average, they reported having just 26 minutes of free time per week. 26 minutes. That's not long enough even to stream an episode of your favorite show, or barely enough time to listen to an episode of this podcast, which is probably why most of us multitask. You might even be driving or working out or cooking or on social media right now as you listen to this episode. Our on-demand world has taken staying busy to another extreme. It's hard for most of us to sit and just be. Take a look the next time you're in a waiting room at an appointment. Everyone is on their phones, trying to fill the time with something rather than just waiting. I listened to the DJs on a favorite radio station talk about it recently. They're a married couple, and he talked about how he takes posted signs very seriously. And at a recent appointment, the doctor's office had posted a sign reading, absolutely no cell phones in the waiting room. Though the sign likely meant no talking on your cell phones, this DJ took it literally. As tempted as he was to get on and check email or browse the internet or scroll through his feed, he sat there the whole time, taking the challenge of absolutely no cell phones as a chance to just sit there and be still. Of course, the morning radio show banter highlighted the fact that everyone else was on their phones, and he jested that though the rest all broke the posted rule blatantly, he embraced the moment to stop being busy and have a few minutes to do nothing. But for many people, such a thought of doing nothing might drive them crazy. In our family growing up, saying, I'm bored, was a cardinal sin. If that was expressed, we were quickly given a list of chores to do. We were taught there is always something productive to do, and if you can't think of anything, it will be assigned. And while good work ethic and productivity are certainly to be applauded, we can admit that a lot of our staying busy in today's world is not all that productive, nor is it healthy. One of my favorite verses, and one that I have quoted numerous times on the podcast, is from Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord challenging his people to be still, to not strive and strain all the time, and to let go and let God. Sometimes most of us struggle with that. While the early church seemed to share in this struggle as we pick up our verses in Acts chapter 1, Jesus had told them to be still, that they should wait in Jerusalem until his spirit poured out upon them. He told them it would be not many days from now, assuring them that they could rest and sit tight and it would come. They would not miss it. I don't know about you, but that sounds awesome to be given some time off. After all that they had gone through, the three years of ministry training with Jesus, and then the craziness of the last few weeks, the betrayal, the arrest, the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection. And then the intensity of the resurrection appearings, seeing Jesus in a new context and getting some last minute notes on what their next phase of life and ministry might look like. And then Jesus tells them to hold on for a bit, that the spirit would come not many days from now, and then the work would begin. But what do they do? They seem to have a hard time sitting still and waiting on the Lord. So they find ways to stay busy. And a lot of it was probably not necessary. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. If we are honest, there are probably a lot of times that we are laboring in vain. The things that we're doing, the things that we're building, they're just busy work. 
a lot of activity, but maybe not exactly necessary in the end. So let's stop what we're doing long enough to take a look and consider as we go through Acts 1 verses 9 through 26 on this episode of the Verbatim Word Podcast. The apostles are gathered, we are told, and in Acts 1 verse 8, Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem and that they would receive the Holy Spirit to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. A huge calling and assignment for this group of Jewish apostles. Most of them probably had never set foot out of Israel. Jerusalem, likely their farthest trek from their traditional stomping grounds of Galilee. So this is big. This is huge. And we pick up in verses 9 through 11. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up. And a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. What a surreal supernatural moment. While they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. I mean, what must these men from Galilee think? This is before CGI and special effects. This is no Marvel movie. Granted, they had seen a ton of things that must have rocked them water to wine, healings, multiplying of loaves and fish, dead arising, storms calmed, walking on water. But this one, I think it might take the cake. It was a Las Vegas magic show moment, a circus act before their eyes, but no hidden wires because it's not a circus act. There are no wires, no harnesses, no platforms, but the son of God who came from heaven now returns to heaven. He came as a baby, a supernatural conception, but a natural birth, a humble entrance into the world that no one would consider out of the ordinary. But the departure, it is literally out of this world. Jesus had told them about this on his final night with them before his arrest. Sometime amidst the washing of feet and the Passover meal they partook in, he told them in John 16, verse 5, But now I go away to him who sent me. And then a few verses later in verse 28, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. And they are now seeing the literal fulfillment of this some 40 years later on the mount called Olivet, just outside of Jerusalem. Think about it. This departure, it means Jesus has completed his work for now. A generation ago, or maybe two generations ago, Elvis Presley could draw a crowd. He was the thing everyone was nuts about. People would go crazy, do crazy things in anticipation or response, fainting in the front row. And apparently crowds would stick around even long after his concerts, hoping to get one more glimpse of the king of rock and roll. And so once Elvis had finished up and left in order to disperse the crowds, an announcement to all who remained, Elvis has left the building. The show was over. His work was done. No more songs, no more encores. You are free to move on and get going. Well, in this scene, Jesus has left the building. He has left the earth, the king, and much more than the king of rock and roll. His ministry of his first coming is done. It is complete. No follow-up numbers or songs, no encore to wait for. Jesus has left the building because his work was done, the work of the cross. In his first coming, Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. And he did it. It was finished. The sin of mankind, past, present, and future, it is paid for. The resurrection power redeeming us from the grave and setting us free to no longer be slaves of sin, but slaves of righteousness to all who would receive it.
Jesus has left the building. So if the Son has set us free, we are free indeed. If we are in Christ, we are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But some Christians hang around the stage, figuring there has to be more to it. What if they mess up again? What about the things of their past? What if they do not do enough today or perform well enough? They have not applied in faith all that Jesus performed for them, laid out on stage for us, and rather than moving on to their new life in Christ, they linger, frozen, paralyzed, unable to move on to the things that the Lord has. Well, Jesus left this earth, his first coming complete, sin paid for, your sin, my sin, the sin of all mankind, and the disciples watched it. Jesus had left the building. As Jesus goes up, they're captivated. They can hardly believe it. They stare, their eyes fixated, like if you have ever watched a helium balloon let go floating up watching it as it gets smaller and smaller until your eyes eventually can't see it anymore. Jesus keeps going up in a cloud until he disappears from view. What an amazing sight. What a memorable sight. What a scary sight too, I imagine. For three years, Jesus had been right there. His presence providing a peace and comfort and security. He was the Prince of Peace after all. And even in the last 40 days with him coming and going, he was still there. They would knew they'd see him again, but now he's out of their sight. He's gone and they are left alone. If you've ever seen someone off at the airport, watched them go through security, waited until they had to go around the corner and that sad feeling of departure, holding on to the last minute until you have to return to the car alone. That's nothing compared to Jesus being gone. I imagine that things just got really real for the disciples in this moment. Now, two things. First, while there might be a moment of, uh-oh, we're on our own, he told them that he would not leave them as orphans, that he would come to them, sending the promise of the Spirit. And earlier in the conversation in chapter 1 said, not many days from now. So while this sobriety of Jesus having taken his flight out of here set in, there was a promise they were clinging to that they would not be alone. Second, they're expecting Jesus to come back. I wonder if they keep watching in case this is a quick turnaround. Jesus up in the cloud wearing the robe and all, disappears for a bit, goes backstage for a quick costume change, then tears the sky open to come back on his white horse, faithful and true. Did they figure that they would just wait there? Okay, Jesus, it's been long enough, all of five minutes, you can come back now. Notice that Jesus did not tell them that it would be 2,000 plus years. The Lord is good to only give us as much info as we can handle. And often I'm convinced he does not tell us all the details because we would freak out, get overwhelmed, shirk back in fear. If he told us what we might face or how long we'd need to persevere or how he might use us or refine us or challenge us or mold us. I remember serving single on the mission field and I kept asking the Lord for a spouse. And I sensed he, him kept telling me, you take care of my bride, the church, and I will take care of your bride. So I endured as a single pastor and missionary, and I would set milestones for myself like, okay, Lord, I can make it six more months. It would come and go. Or Lord, I can make it to New Year's, but by next year, Lord, you have to make it happen. 
Next thing I knew, the clock was striking midnight on New Year's and still no spouse. It would go on and on, and the Lord did not show me the whole picture, that I would be on the mission field 10 whole years before meeting my wife-to-be, because I would not have handled that information. I would have packed up and gone home, and all the mountains and valleys and lessons I learned, he did not outline them in advance, but he knew the whole time the game plan. The apostles are watching, maybe expecting Jesus to come back as soon as possible, though it would end up being at least 2,000 years at the time of this recording, something he did not fill them in on. But this first generation of believers, they trusted that he would come back, literally, just as he promised. They did not write it off or change their theology or say it was symbolic or rewrite it to say that this existence is really it and all there is to it. They anticipated his return. In fact, Peter was there that day, mouth wide open, catching flies as he looked up into the sky. And years later, he wrote his two epistles, written to a growing church that was facing hardships in this world because they believed in the gospel. Peter was still holding on to the promise that Jesus would come back. He wrote in his second epistle, chapter 3, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Peter said in the the last days, people will doubt that Jesus will come back at his word, even scoffing at those who believe in it. He goes on to write this in verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus is not dilly-dallying. He is patient, letting the gospel go forth to usher as many into the kingdom. So we need to be ready so we are not caught off guard. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. We need to be ready. And then in verse 14, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. Looking forward to these things, to his return. Peter and the guys are taking in the moment, looking forward to his return. Are you looking forward to Jesus' return? It's a reality we should cling to, the imminent return of Christ. Peter said that looking forward to these things, we should be diligent, work hard to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. In peace. No matter what is going on in this world or in our chaotic lives, peace knowing that he is near, at the door. And without spot and blameless, not living it up until he returns, but living a life that he could walk in on at any moment and not doing anything we might be ashamed of. No spot, no black marks, moving toward holiness because we believe he can come back at any time. And like a bride waiting for the groom, we want to be ready. Not sure how long this goes on for, but we are told that they are still looking up. Two men stood by them in white apparel, saying, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. These are angels, no doubt. Luke notes their clothing. Pretty sure white apparel was not much of a thing in 32 AD in this part of the world. Even now, hard to wear white and keep it clean. How much more in an agrarian society, dusty Roman roads, wearing the same thing day after day. On the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples noted how white Jesus' clothes were, white like snow, whiter than any launder on earth could produce. Were these first century men really into fashion, noting the white garments? 
Or does the fact that they are wearing white, these two men here in Acts chapter 1, point to the fact that no one from those parts would be wearing white? That these two guys were not from around here, something not of this world. And the info that they give, it's heavenly insight. The only messengers sent from on high would know. They say, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. These angels are sent as ministering spirits to serve the purposes of Jesus here on this earth. The writer of Hebrews writes about angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? They're working behind the scenes as the great story of salvation unfolds. In this scene, as the men of Galilee are staring up into heaven, they appear and are noted likely to be angels. But the writer of Hebrews later writes in chapter 13, Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. What an interesting thought. The Lord's servants coming and going, sometimes seen, sometimes not, sometimes disguised. Of course, some get caught up in all this angel stuff and idolize them, something Paul warned the Colossian church about in chapter 2, verse 18. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. But these angels are sent at a key time to sort of break the stay or the gaze. They say, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. The same way, in a cloud, to this spot. It's a round-trip ticket. The Old Testament prophet Daniel saw Christ's return in a vision. Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and, and kingdom, a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Interesting that one of Jesus' most common ways of referring to himself was the Son of Man, likely a throwback here to Daniel chapter 7, encouraging people to go back and see, where have I heard that phrase before? It was prophesied in the Old Testament. The Messiah, Jesus, will come back in the clouds as well to set up his kingdom, an everlasting kingdom, one that no one can fight against or destroy. The Old Testament prophet Zechariah said that Christ would return to the same place from which Jesus was taken up to. Zechariah 14, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two, from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And further in verse 9, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be, the Lord is one, and his name is one. How we can lose perspective of all this, get caught up in our temporal world, and lose sight of more important things. Much of what we fret over and wrestle with today, it's not eternal. We get busy trying to fix everything, make it work in our favor or more to our liking. And much of the busyness is a waste of time because it is out of our control. It's very temporal, and putting it back in perspective can be good for us to do. Once upon a time, you told someone to chill or just chill out or take a chill pill. Cool off. You're heated over something and making a bigger deal out of it than necessary. Sometimes in light of eternity, the things that we're dealing with today just chill. It's not eternal. Aaron and I returned recently from a trip overseas, and our trip back was anything but smooth. 
delays in departure, weather and storms, it meant we missed a connection flight. Lines at customer service a quarter mile long, lots of inconvenienced people had to stay overnight. So we grabbed a hotel. A couple Ubers later, we made it back the next day to the airport. Some connections, layovers, storms again, delaying deep planning and luggage. We were burnt out. And instead of getting home just before midnight on a Wednesday, we made it home at 1.30 a.m. on Friday morning. The 20-hour trip took 48 hours. After a shower and a good night's rest in our own bed, I reflected a bit. We had not done the delays and disruptions graciously. We could have done much better. We did not lose it on anyone or lose our witness with anyone other than maybe a few tense and terse responses to one another. But still, we were not exactly overflowing with the fruit of the spirit for the 48 hour ordeal. So a week later, I found myself boarding a plane again. I committed to do it better this time, telling the Lord that no matter what happened on my flights and connections, I would give it to him and trust it would all work out. I boarded my first flight and we were set to depart early, which was awesome since my connection was less than an hour at a busy hub. And then the captain came on. A flight attendant call button was malfunctioning, dinging on and off. And while I could see that that could be annoying, apparently it was a safety issue and would need to be repaired before we could leave the airport. My initial response was to be anxious, but I had told the Lord that I would trust because a delay after all is not eternal. In the meantime, as we waited, my seatmate struck up a conversation, seeing the t-shirt I was wearing with the word Kawhi emblazoned across the front, the front of it. And the conversation quickly unfolded. He actually knew a cousin of mine through work, and we were both believers. The flight attendant button issue was resolved, and we headed on our way. And the seatmate and I, we talked the whole time, covered a lot of territory, very encouraging fellowship and ministry at 30,000 feet. And the cool thing was, is that I was not supposed to sit there in that seat. My seat was in 5D, but upon boarding, the gate agent had to reseat a passenger seated in the exit row, since this passenger did not speak English well and could not follow crew instructions if needed. So I offered to trade seats so as to keep the boarding process going because I had a tight connection. In that move, not only did I get an amazing leg room in the exit row, but I got an amazing seatmate. And the flight flew by, no pun intended, and I did not focus on the delay at all. It was like the Lord telling me to seek first the kingdom of God and everything else would be added to me. Not to sweat the small stuff, but focus on the bigger, eternal things. In the end, our pilot made up time in the air and we actually landed on time, even with our 15-20 minute delay departing from the gate. The guy and I exchanged numbers to stay in touch and I headed off to my next flight. And not joking, wheels down from my first flight, getting my gate check bag, navigating through a major hub of Phoenix, it was wheels down to sitting in my next seat in 15 minutes time. I think it was a record. It's like the Lord multiplied the time and got me where I needed to be. How often we get busy with trying to make things happen, avoid problems, distractions, delays, inconveniences. We get all caught up. We get in the flesh because we're irritable. We're anxious. We're worried about how to make it all happen. We're drowning in the temporal and forgetting it's all about the eternal. Mankind and history have gone through a lot in the last 2000 years since Jesus departed, but Jesus has a round trip ticket as he went. So he will return. Where he left from, he will come back to the same spot. And a lot of the daily distractions keep us from keeping that in mind. Paul said to the Philippians, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are citizens of heaven, and that should be our focus. 
our eager focus as we wait for Jesus' return. Are you waiting right now? When we depart for the day, our kitties usually watch us leave through the back door, and I'm sure they spend the day throughout the house sleeping, napping on this couch or on the bed or on their perch in the windowsill. I'm sure they make the rounds throughout the day. But somehow they know around the time we're coming home, and guess where they are? They're at the back door once again, looking through the back window, hoping to see us come back. And when we do, they're right in our faces, at our feet, probably wanting a bite to eat as well. What's your posture right now? Where are you waiting? Where are you looking? Are you eagerly waiting for his return? Are you standing by, looking for the same direction that he came from and the same location that he left you in, seeing that he'll come back to you? Because that's his promise to us. And so the angels break the silence and the stare. It will come in like manner as he left. Until then, they were to be busy about his business. So they take their cue and we read verses 12 through 14. Then they, the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. A short journey back to the place that they were staying. Jesus did not expect them to get busy right away. There was time for transition, to reflect, to evaluate, to respond. We need times for transition. Like turning on the lights in a dark room, we need a bit to adjust. And in life as well, we are wise to allow ourselves transition time. A few minutes in the driveway to pray before walking in the house. A day or two home after traveling before heading back out. Space to refocus and reflect on what God has done and what he has for us next. This group takes a Sabbath day's journey. It was a limited distance. There was time to transition. And we see this group. It was the old gang minus Judas. They continued in one accord in prayer and supplication as they remained together, encouraging one another in all that they've experienced, this in-between time. The tendency would be to get busy, to begin doing some type of activity. Some people cannot sit still. If there is no project, they will create a project. If there is no work, they will create work. If there is no drama, they will create drama. These disciples, they do get busy in a way in prayer and supplication. Some people do not pray much. They would rather do something. The problem is that if we do things without praying, we don't do much. We can find ourselves spinning our wheels. Some find prayer to be a waste of time. Too much prayer, not enough action. But prayer does accomplish much. James wrote, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Praying is staying busy. Much of the work can be done as we pray, as the Lord works. And praying on our part acknowledges that we know that the Lord needs to work and that we can stay as busy as we can, but unless the Lord does something, none of our efforts matter. We'd be wise that before we get busy in the most important things, that we get busy in prayer. Because before we know what to do, we need to seek God or else we just run down rabbit trails and it's not necessarily fruitful or necessary. A lot of being busy, but not much is accomplished. So the disciples are staying busy in what is most fruitful in this season, prayer first. And they are not alone. It says, the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' brothers are there praying too. Here we see Mary. She's staying busy with the apostles praying. It's the last mention of her in the New Testament account. Long before the rise of Mary worship, 
Multitudes of people stay busy with praying to Mary, venerating Mary. Mary has been tasked with being a co-redemptress by some. Goodness, what mom would want to be tasked with that? Most moms have too much on their plate already, and segments of Christianity have given Mary extra responsibility. She's supposed to take all of Jesus' calls, check in all the visitors who are seeking her son, keeping her busy as a mediator between people and Jesus. And people are kept busy trying to get Mary's attention, praying to her, saying, Hail Mary's, pilgrimage is to see the latest appearing. Religion will always do that. It keeps you busy, but it's not fruitful. Our religious natures, our legalistic bent, it easily slips into doing things that God does not need you to do or has already accomplished. We stay busy when we can really just rest in what Jesus has done and pursue the relationship that he has made room for. This group of disciples, Mary, the women, the brothers, they are praying, enjoying the relationship that they have with Jesus. Well, it seems like they started off well, but after a bit of time, they seem to get an itch too much waiting around, so they unhatch a plan to feel productive, though not sure if it was in the end. Check out the discussion at Acts 1, verses 15 through 19. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, altogether the number of names was about 120, and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. And here's a side note by Luke as he writes, Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So that field is called in their own language, Akel Dam, that is, field of blood. And then Peter quotes from some Psalms that seem to point to Judas's betrayal and what they should do next. Verse 20, For it is written in the book of Psalms, let this dwelling let his dwelling place be desolate and let no one live in it quoting from psalm 69:25 and let another take his office quoting from psalm 109 verse 8 so in a nutshell peter stands up in the group about 120 people at this time and they've been looking at scripture and they have found prophecy that points to judas one pointing to him abandoning his post and what they see is a call to replace him as one of the 12 Scripture is full of prophecy about the first coming of Jesus and his ministry, his death, burial, and his resurrection, and his return. And these disciples have been searching, looking for biblical perspective on things. And the Holy Spirit wrote it centuries earlier and then reveals it at this time. What comfort for them to know that the betrayal was not a surprise to God. Jesus had even told them the night before the cross, one of you will betray me. But it was not an afterthought. The Father knew this long before. What a powerful thing for them to cling to, that God was in control. That Judas's betrayal, though it blindsided them, was not a result of their failing or that they had missed something or that they should have been more vigilant. The Lord knew, and now they finally saw it in Scripture. Prophecy points to Jesus Christ, and when we read Scripture, Christ is revealed. There are times that the Lord speaks to us personally through His Word, but this should always align with the rest of Scripture. And whether or not it was really the Lord who spoke is usually proven in hindsight. But Peter and the group saw in Scripture words that pointed to Judas. Judas had walked among them for three years, and now he is gone. The note from Luke telling us that the money he was given for the betrayal, the money that he had tried to give back, was used to purchase a field. And we are told here that he fell headlong and burst open and his guts spilled out. The Gospels tell us that 
he hung himself. So many see no problem with this, that he hung himself and then the rope or branch broke and he fell and it split open, putting these two scriptures together. But what a gruesome and tragic end for Judas. He got off track. His motives changed. He wanted for profit, apparently. And when he saw there was nothing in it for him, he agreed to to the lie of Satan and betrayed Jesus rather than staying busy with the things that the Lord had for him. The other disciples have seen the warning in Judas's failure, and they want to be busy about the work of Jesus. So taking these scriptures from the Psalms in account, Peter thinks he has a plan. Verses 21 through 26. Therefore, of these men who have accomplished us, accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out from among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day that he was taken up from among us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. They pick up on the psalm that said, Let another take his office. And Peter and the group decide, Well, enough waiting around, let's get to work. Let's appoint another apostle. Reasonable criteria, let's fill that twelfth spot with someone who has been around since the start. From the baptism of John until Jesus' ascension, a witness of the resurrected Jesus. Nothing necessarily wrong with this proposal. It's a noble idea, but I wonder if it is born out of this waiting. And they have a hard time staying still. A sort of, don't just stand there, do something moment. A need to feel productive. They propose two men, and then they cast lots. They draw lots. They toss a coin. In the Old Testament, they did this at times, trusting the Lord to move divinely in the realm of choices, leaving room for God's sovereignty when a decision had to be made. So they pick up this Old Testament practice here, and the lot falls to Matthias. He takes his seat at the table of the revered twelve apostles. An apostle is one who is sent, and while all the disciples were sent, as we are in the Great Commission, was Matthias really called to be an apostle? Many Bible scholars and commentators think that 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 spot for the 12th apostle is reserved for Paul. An apostle, though one is born out of due time, he said of himself, a little late to the game, but an apostle nonetheless, called and sent by God, beginning on the road to Damascus, a chosen instrument sent to the Gentiles. If Peter and the group had waited it out, they would have seen God's hand in Paul's story. But on this day, they felt the need to get busy. Nothing sinful about what they did, but it was, was it their doing or the Lord's leading? I'm not sure whether this was fruitful or not. It could have been a wasted day's work. I'm sure Matthias served well, but we don't really hear about him from here on out. And then again, we don't read about most of the apostles again from here on out other than as a group. We can sometimes do things for the Lord, good intentions and all, but maybe they're not really fruitful or impactful. When I was in elementary school, I can remember the grade, I can't remember the grade though, the teachers were potentially going to go on strike, which as a kid prior to any COVID lockdowns, the thought of being out of school for a period of time, it sounded great. So in preparation for a potential teacher strike, the teachers prepared packets for us. No online learning back then, so we had photocopied packets that in case the strike did begin, we were to work from home a bit each day. So they sent us home on a Thursday with our packets, and Friday was just a day off. I think it was a holiday or something. But come Monday, if the strike started, we were to begin working in those packets. Well, I wanted to get ahead. 
So I took my packet home Thursday and I started working. And I continued Friday, which was the day off, and worked on the take-home assignments, figuring I would get busy and work ahead. And then when Monday came and the strike began, I would already be a few assignments ahead. Well, I jumped the gun. I did get quite a bit of my packet worked on. And then Monday came and the strike was averted. No strike, which meant no packet. Oh, I had gotten busy. I had done lots of work, but there was no need to. My labor, well, it was in vain. Sometimes I think we can get busy for God, and it is unnecessary. Certainly, we try with our works to add to what Jesus has done for us, and it's in vain. But also when we try to do things for God, coming up with great ideas, or so we think, of what God needs in his kingdom. And we try to help God. We initiate things for God. We do things on behalf of God. But maybe there are things that he never commissions to be done. It's all done with a good heart and motives. But is it just busy work? Is there any lasting fruit in the kingdom? I turned in my strike packet to my teacher when I returned to school, and though she was pleased that I was diligent, it was never graded. It counted for nothing. My desire to be busy led to nothing in the end. Peter and the gang did some things right. They were expecting Jesus to come back and gazing at the horizon. They headed back in one accord, unified, praying, seeking Jesus. They were motivated to keep the story alive, moving to a point of 12th to keep the gospel message going forward when Jesus switched the green light on to begin fulfilling the Great Commission. They did so much right in this chapter. They were busy about the work of Jesus as much as they could be. And so should we be busy with what the Lord has given us. At this point, this group of disciples, they're quite limited, limited in number, 120 of them, still in a bit of a daze from the previous weeks, the betrayal, the ascension, limited in direction. Jesus had told them to wait for the Holy Spirit and further instructions would come. And it seems to me that they wanted to do more, to get busy. But there is a time and a season for everything. And praying and being in one accord was so necessary at this point. Because in a matter of a few days on the day of Pentecost, everything will change. And they will never get this time again. The 120 will become 3,000 in a single day. The needs and the demands ever pressing way beyond their abilities. The depths with which they will need to depend upon the Holy Spirit. They will be stretched and God will be faithful. If they knew what was coming, they would take this time, this season, to be in this season completely, not anxiously trying to rush forward. In the Lord's wisdom, he gave them that season, that time. Scripture tells us not to despise the day of small things. Sometimes we rush forward, striving for things we're not ready for yet, for the big call, for more influence, for a bigger ministry, for things to change in our personal lives. Lord, get us into the next season as soon as possible. And we fail to stand fully in the season that we're in, eyes set on the next. But the Lord has ordained the times and the seasons, and he wants us to dive fully into whatever season he has for us right now. Jeremiah was clued into the fact that there will be great challenges on the horizon. And he said in Jeremiah 12 verse 5, If you have run with the footmen and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with the horses? And if in the land of peace in which you have trusted they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? To paraphrase, if you're struggling right now with riding a bike with training wheels, you're not ready to pedal in the Tour de France. One step at a time. And commit fully to what the Lord has for you in this season. There is a reason and purpose for it. So embrace the delays. Be still and know. 
Take time to pray before stepping out and consider things beforehand in light of eternity to see if that is something worth being busy about if the Lord should tarry and engage him when he fully returns and finally returns, or if he has you a time to sit and be still in one accord. Lord, you are outside of time and space, but our lives almost always seem to be on a schedule. We want to stop and consider. Lord, give us wisdom and patience to know your will for us in this season. Call us into things that are fruitful, that are for your kingdom, and that might bring you glory. And divert us, Lord, if we are headed in the wrong direction or busy about things that do not really matter in the end. Lord, teach us to pray and to hear your leading and your guiding so that we might fulfill your purposes for us. And Lord, we just ask that you would illuminate your word. Lord, that it might guide our every step, a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.